Yes, hello and welcome to Adventures with Calvinist Man. That's right, this is your resident Reformed theology superhero, Calvinist Man. Now, you may be wondering, who is Calvinist Man? What is his secret identity? Well, I can neither confirm nor deny that Calvinist Man is Andy Kane, but I will say this much. To my knowledge, nobody has ever seen Calvinist Man and Andy Kane in the same room together. But welcome to Adventures with Calvinist Man, a brand new podcast here at By His Grace, a podcast designed and meant to defend Reformed theology, defend the doctrine of grace, the doctrines of grace, defend what is commonly called Calvinism, and this will be the singular focus of this podcast. Remember, this is and the leader of this podcast, the hero, if you will, is in fact Calvinist man. He's faster than a speeding Armenian, more powerful than man-centered exegesis, and able to leap tall straw men in a single bound. Look up in the sky, it's a bird. No, it's tulip. It's Calvinist man. That's right. Yes, I know. I know how silly that is. <laughs> I know how third grade it is. But my friends, that is who I am. I I'm not admitting that I'm Andy Kane. I'm just saying if Andy Kane were here, he would say that's who he is. He's silly. He likes, he loves Superman. He loves superheroes and all that. In fact, I do believe that our king of the Armenians, our friend in crime, Keith Foskey, is a fellow Superman enthusiast of sorts. And so I have come up with this character, Calvinist man, to be the superhero of Calvinism, defending it, explaining it, and ultimately making it make sense if you will. Well, we will certainly not be going through that long intro every single time, but I wanted to welcome you to this first episode of Adventures with Calvinist Man. And so this first episode, I want to talk about the boogeyman. Yes, the boogeyman. You say the boogeyman, are you talking about the one that hides under my bed? Yes, that boogeyman. We want to talk about the boogeyman of Calvinism. The boogeyman of Calvinism. Yes, that's right. You see, you may not realize this or even know this, but you probably have encountered this boogeyman and didn't know it. I can't tell you how many times I have been told or asked about this alleged boogeyman, this evil, dark, sinister boogeyman hiding under your theological sheets, hiding under your theological bed, just waiting to come out and get you, waiting to come out and ensnare you in that flesh, God, evil cavitism. You know, uh, yes, it, believe it or not, there are some fundies that actually talk that way. Um, yeah, so I've been in church interviews where I've been interviewing and I am not making this up. I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. Usually one of the first questions 
well, I wouldn't say usually because not all churches would do this, but in, in, in those interviews or where this has occurred, either the first or usually the second question I get asked. And in fact, I remember it, it, they asked one time, you know, you ain't caught up or you ain't partner at Calvinism, are you? I was like, all I could do was hang my head and be like, oh, dear Lord, what are we? What have I got myself into? Um, and, you know, in, in one interview I was in one time, I, I swear to you, the first question I was asked was, you believe in altar calls, don't you? I was like, oh, sweet Lord. Well, I know everything I need to know now. Thank you. And I proceeded to tell them we weren't a good fit. And that was the end of that. Um, but it, it, it just by default, the default position in your average American, particularly Southern Baptist church is the Arminian, the synergistic view. And I would say the provisionist view, but I think to, to some degree, that's what most people default into. But sadly, Soteriology 101 and the provisionists online, especially on Twitter, have really jumped the shark here lately. I mean, and the thing is, you, you, you can plead and ask them to not misrepresent, to not, in, in some cases, outright lie about Calvinism. They've been corrected. They've had this explained to them, I don't know how many times, and that they still continue to beat the same old drum. That's why, as your resident superhero, Calvinist man, I am here. I am faster than those speeding Arminians. I am more powerful than this man-centered exegesis and synergism you get from the anti-reform perspective. And yes, I can leap their straw man in a single bound. So there is no need to fear. Well, I'm kind of crossing superheroes there. Almost went into the underdog theme. So let's make sure we keep our superheroes separate here. Uh, moving forward, let's consider, and I want you to um, pay close attention to your, your superhero here, Calvinist man. Calvinism's not a boogeyman. It's not something to be afraid of. I, I remember it, it. It's just, and of course, when, I, when I'm in these situations, I handle it with kid gloves. Of course, I'm not looking there to be. You know, we're not. D despite the straw man and the caricatures of Calvinists that you see on Twitter and in 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 the world, we're not evil. We're not mean. We're not looking to hurt people. We're not looking to beat you down or beat you up with, with a picture of John Calvin or Martin Luther. We're actually very nice guys. I mean, after all, I am Calvinist man. I am your superhero. I'm here to help. I'm here to get kitties out of trees. I'm here to stop fires. I'm here to do all those things that Superman says he can do. Only I can do them much better because I was elected from the foundation of the world to do these things. And so, yes, you will have to bear with a, um, a plethora of horrible, cheesy dad jokes. After all, I am a dad. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, when I'm asked about it, it's like, you know, you want him Calvinist, are you? I'm like, oh, sweet Lord, bless us. What happens is people are, anytime you say something's ignorant, people take it as like you're saying they're stupid. I'm not saying they're stupid, but people are ignorant. I was ignorant at one point. I remember the first time I was encountered and in, in engaged with this uh, teaching and 
you know, I just thought, man, it's it's when when you have as a default position, Arminianism, synergism, provisionism, whatever you want to call it, it, it does sound foreign to you, and it sounds like, oh my God, that must be wrong. And then I had the Holy Spirit light bulb moment because I had studied the scriptures, and I, I really only went home to study the scriptures to prove the person wrong that was teaching this to me. And it, it turns out the person that was teaching it in Sunday school class ended up being one of my mentors, and I carry some of his articles on my website. So, but I went home because I was like, I got to show this guy's wrong. And then, you know, I started studying the scriptures, and I'm like, huh, huh, okay, um. Huh. Uh, well, okay then. <laughs> and that was that. Uh, the Holy Spirit illuminated it for me, and I saw that the consistent reading of Scripture, the plain reading of Scripture, only lends itself to one conclusion, and that is Reformed theology, doctrines of grace, um, the tulip, if you will. Now, Look, we're going to be discussing why Calvinism is not a boogeyman. I want to discuss and give just sort of an overall introductory understanding of Calvinism, and we will go through TULIP in a brief fashion here. But do not take me as explaining that, that Calvinist man is a 100% supporter of TULIP as it is usually explained i and i'll identify some of my issues with it as we go through the key for the one who is reformed in their soteriology and soteriology means study of salvation so in reformed meaning you are typically calvinist you believe in unconditional election so on and so forth that and this is the one that really drives people bonkers we believe regeneration precedes faith that one must be raised to spiritual life to exercise faith in god so that you know that really makes people angry um but the truly reformed calvinist and in particular your friend and superhero calvinist man here ultimately our goal is to be god-centered biblically uh, or have as our foundation scripture now i know everybody claims that oh i want to go to scripture you know y'all everybody does it so the key is you have to decide for yourself and you have to find out, okay, let's judge these people by their conclusions and how well and consistently they handle the text and then make a determination. Who really has the scripture as their foundation? Who is being the most consistent with the text? And what I have found is that a consistent, to be the most consistent with the text, you have to land at reformed, a reformed soteriology. And so I won't be the best person that has ever explained this. I mean, I'm I'm still younger. I'm still working through things. I'm still growing in my capacity to teach things, but I will do the best I absolutely can as your resident superhero cabinet's man. I will lean on those that have come before me. I lean on people like Dr. James R. White and R.C. Sproul and then many, many others that you know as well. And so I lean on my own understanding, my own study and all these things. So what I want to do is, is help you come to understand, not just in this episode, but every episode, whether we're exegeting John 6 or looking at Romans, uh, different chapters in Romans, look, we will look at all the major passages that get brought up. We'll look at all those things and go through them in detail and 
probably get a little deeper than what you'll get in a casual sermon because the goal here is to help you understand what Scripture actually says and do it consistently, contextually, and all those things. And I want you to come to understand that even if you don't agree with the Reformed perspective, even if you don't agree with Calvinist man that the Bible teaches Calvinism, I want you to get away from this understanding that Calvinism is some kind of boogeyman to be feared. And the reason, I think I started to say this earlier in golf track, so forgive me, Calvinist man has had a long day. Calvinist man is weary and tired. And unlike that so-called superhero, Superman, I don't have, the yellow sun does not charge me. I have to rely on other means. So I have to rely on the doctrines of grace to strengthen me. But you don't need to fear the boogeyman of Calvinism because Calvinism isn't a boogeyman. And the reason people think of it as a boogeyman is because what they what has happened in not just their ignorance, but in the ignorance of the one teaching them. And also people aren't, Calvinism largely isn't correctly represented. And so what happens is people end up getting taught what is actually hyper-Calvinism. But they're taught hyper-Calvinism as if it's regular Calvinism. So, in brief summary fashions, uh, hyper-Calvinism is this belief, you know, that God has his elect, and it literally doesn't matter what you do, God is going to do what he does, and it doesn't matter if you witness, it doesn't matter if you obey God in the gospel, participate in the gospel, it doesn't matter anything you do, it's just going to happen the way it happens, there's literally nothing. Uh, it, It really is the extreme robot example of God just pulling strings and we have no say in nothing whatsoever. It doesn't matter. And all these types of extreme, I don't even have to witness. There's no need to participate in the gospel, all these things, because God's just going to do what he's going to do. And so that hyper-Calvinism is always, I wouldn't say always, but a great majority of the time, it's portrayed as Calvinism, as the Reformed understanding. And so a lot of times when we're dealing with misrepresentations of Reformed theology, like what you see from Soteriology 101, Leighton Flowers, a lot of these people that constantly misrepresent us, we spend so much of our time trying to just correct the misrepresentations first to get back to an even playing field so that we can have the discussion about what we believe. And You see a lot of this, and a lot of the misrepresentations we end up correcting are where someone uh, sort of inserts or explains something through a lens of hyper-Calvinism. So a hyper-Calvinistic lens or explanation will create that fear and create that, you know, oh my God, that can't be right sort of understanding. So your superhero, Calvinist man, is here to dispel all those fears, to help you understand that Calvinism is not a boogeyman. Yes, we believe God is sovereign, but we also believe that God uses means to accomplish his decree and accomplish his purposes. And one of those means is human involvement. It involves us uh, primarily after we've been raised to life in Christ, living out that new creature that we are in Christ, obeying Christ. And one of the commands we obey from Christ is to to 
believe the gospel, repent of our sin, call all men everywhere to repent. We disciple the nations. We expand the kingdom. God uses means to accomplish his decree. Yes, God is sovereign. God has his decree. And yes, it's true that only what God has decreed will come to pass. But it, but the biggest thing you see with people that are fearful of Calvinism, that believe in the Calvinist boogeyman, typically what you find is that they have a hard time understanding and distinguishing between categories. They have a lot of categorical issues, a lot of categorical errors. So, for example, you can have situations where two things can be true. So it's true, yes, that God lives the Christian life through us. It is true that God's power is the power that enables us to live the Christian life. But it's also true that Scripture commands us to work and to stretch and put forth effort and to strain almost to the point of exhaustion at times to grow in our capacity to be living Christ-likeness. You say, well, hyper-Calvinism would take that example and say, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to work. You don't have to put forth effort. God's just going to live the Christian life through you. Well, the other extreme would say there's no reliance upon God's power. It's all upon you to do whatever you got to do. Well, the true biblical explanation there in that situation is that there's two categories. There's the category of God's power working in us. There's the category of human effort and us straining and working to grow. Both are true at the exact same time. Paul says this in Philippians. I just preached this a couple weeks ago. Paul says in two verses back to back, I want to say it's Philippians 2, 12 and 13, somewhere in there. He says in one verse, you must work. You must put forth effort. You must have genuine character. You must grow and work in your Christ likeness. And in the very next sentence, very next verse, he says, and it is God that is working in you the works of God. So it seems contradictory. It seems you're saying two things out of two sides of your mouth, but it's not. It's two things that are both equally true at the same time because we understand proper categories, but we also understand how Scripture can teach that which may seem categorically contradictory. But you understand we're dealing with something where an infinite God has condescended to us in a sense of writing in inspired, inerrant Scripture in a way where finite minds and finite creatures can understand what it is He wants to reveal to us. And He has revealed to us everything we need to know, maybe not everything we want to know. So in those instances where we have what we need to know, but maybe not what we want to know, we have to be careful to let Scripture simply say what it says and understand it from that standpoint. It's when we start to rationalize, fill in gaps, force the text to have to be understandable through my finite or man-centered experience. That's where you run into problems. So Calvinism is not a boogeyman. It's not something to be feared. In fact, if in the understanding of theological triage, where we talk about sorting doctrines uh, first level doctrines being the deity of Christ, justification by faith. First level being those things that are definitionally Christian. If we say so-and-so is a Christian or if they're not a Christian, it's upon these basis and upon these doctrines that we'd make that determination. There's second level things like mode of baptism. We would call as a Baptist, my Presbyterian friends are just as much Christian as I am. We did a lot of things we can do together in participation in the gospel and discipling the nations. But at the end of the day, you're either going to 
baptize babies or you're not. Okay? So there would be some level of division there. Third level things that should never divide anyone, like your translation choice, your eschatological views, things like that. But also, a Reformed person and a non-Reformed person should be able to exist in the same church, in the same body of believers. Now, from the standpoint of teaching, it's good if all the elders are on the same page. But if I'm preaching or teaching in a place, and I can guarantee you, most of the congregations I've preached to have probably been Arminian, synergistic, and it's usually by default, like we said, or out of ignorance and things like this. And just like I was at one point, doesn't mean they're wrong or anything, but I can exist in there. You have to allow, now your job as a congregation is allow me to teach my understanding of scripture, even if you don't agree with it. And my job is to respect that you may come to a different belief. That's what maturity amongst believers looks like, even amongst, you know, disagreements. Now, you know, within theological triage, we see things like the fundamentalist taking things which should be third level and raising them to the height of level one. We see liberals taking things that should be level one and saying they're no different than level three. We can all disagree. So reform theology, not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be scared of. It's not a boogeyman. It won't hurt you. And Calvinist man, your superhero is here to guide you and to lead you into a greater understanding of Calvinism and reform soteriology. And once again, you may not ever come to agree with Calvinist man. You may not ever come to agree with what I lay out here, and that's okay. That's perfectly okay. I would ask you to do this. Let's let Scripture be the final authority and judge what I say based on my consistency with the text. And if you have a question, if you want to discuss, if you want to come on the program and have a discussion about any of these points, I would love to do that with you. We can set up through Zoom. We can set up whatever you want to do. Just keep in mind that I'm not here to take mean shots at people. I'm not here to be angry. We're not here to get into heated stuff. We're here to talk about these things because I want people to have all the information that's available to them to make their own decision because that's ultimately what Calvinist man does. I am a superhero after all, but I'm not Andy Kane. That is not my secret identity. I know some of you out there will say, well, that's Andy Kane. I'm telling you, I'm not. Just because I put on glasses. Yeah, I know that you think that doesn't fool you, but it really does. I mean, it's amazing what putting on a simple pair of glasses will do for a guy. But I mean, you can build a whole secret identity off of it. But um, anyway, so let's very briefly run through what is commonly called TULIP just to give a good sort of introduction to what we're dealing with here. TULIP is commonly what's associated with Calvinism. And it's T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, persevering of the saints. Now, John Calvin did not teach TULIP. As if any, one of the ways you usually know if the person standing in front of you knows what they're talking about or if their goal is to accurately represent Reformed theology, you usually know pretty quick that they have none of that in mind if they say, well, you know, that John Calvin that came up with this tulip, like, yeah, I'm probably not going to listen to anything else you have to say at that point. Now, John Calvin taught a lot of what we have come to systemize and categorize as tulip. But that was something that came on the scene afterwards. So 
let's go through it. The first one, and look, remember, once again, we're not doing a very in-depth thing here. We're just sort of establishing some things to, to move forward with. Uh, T, meaning total depravity. What it means is that man is born spiritually dead. It does not mean that man is born totally depraved. And when we say totally depraved, we're not talking about the level or quantity or quality of his sin like we would when we talk about Romans 1 where God judges a nation or you know you're under the judgment of God because of the things you see in Romans 1 happening and the the sheer level of depravity and sin that we see there. And see, that's why you're going to see that even Calvinist man, your superhero Calvinist here, doesn't even agree with everything that Tulip says. Not that the theological underpinnings there I do agree with, but the way it's explained or categorized or or named, named if you will, N-A-M-E-D, named. Um, so when we name this point of total depravity, Yes, I, I I know what it means. I know what's being said, but when 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 I say total depravity, what what I am referencing is the biblical doctrine that man is a trichotomy. He is body, soul, and spirit. We have a fleshly body. We have a soul, meaning we have being. We exist. You know, if you exist and you have being, it's because you have a soul. If you are alive in a body. Well, which I would hope you are, it's because you have a body, okay? Um, the difference between us as finite creatures and God who is infinite is God is an infinite, eternal being, and he's only one being. He exists as one being, but he exists in three distinct persons. There are three distinct persons who are co-equal and co-eternal within the one being, God. We are one being, we have one soul, and we have one personality or one person because we're finite creatures. So the trichotomy, we're body, soul, we are spirit. But every single person born after Adam, meaning starting with Cain and Abel and so on and so forth, are born with a spirit that is dead. It is not alive. It is dead in sin, dead in Adam. We're in Adam, the first man for in Adam, meaning we take on his nature at birth, meaning we are total depraved in the sense that we are born with a spirit that is dead. And so when we see scripture talking about those that worship God will worship in spirit and in truth, when we see Hebrews 11 talking about the only way to please God is with faith, the only way to have faith is in to worship in spirit and in truth. And you must have a spirit that is alive in order to do so. So one must be raised to spiritual life in order to exercise faith in order in order to worship in spirit and in truth. So that's total depravity. Unconditional election. That means that those that will be saved were chosen before the foundation of the world in the Trinitarian plan of redemption upon which all members of all persons of the Trinity are in complete and total eternal harmony. God the Father gives the elect to the Son, the Son dies for the elect, and Spirit seals the elect. Now, of the Arminian persuasion, the synergistic persuasion, they would believe that there is a God working with man, synergism, meaning that 
God has his elect people because as much as the synergists and provisionists and some, some Armenians would love to just eliminate the word elect from the Bible, they can't. So they have to recognize that the Bible teaches election. So what they do to get around it is they say that it was just simply that God could see into the future and would see who would respond and then elected them because of their choice. My friends, you don't see that anywhere in Scripture. You cannot provide a single place in Scripture where that is said. You just can't. So I believe what is called monergism, meaning God elects, and because of his election, all those, as we will see when we study John 6, all those that the Father elects and gives to the Son will come to the Son. And so that's the issue of unconditional election, meaning that God is the one that elects. So the way we explain this is, you know, there's three op three possibilities. God could have saved everybody, which would be universalism, which any, any and all Christians would recognize that Scripture does not teach universalism, and reality tells us universalism is not true because obviously everybody isn't saved. God, option number two, could have saved nobody. And not only does Scripture not teach this, but reality tells us it's not true. And the and the issue there is if God saves everybody, well, he displays grace and mercy, but he doesn't display any justice or wrath for sin or holiness. If he saves nobody, well, he's displayed his justice and his holiness, but there's no grace and mercy. It's only in the third option, saving some, that he displays all of his attributes in salvation, his grace and mercy, also his holiness and justice and so on and so forth. So the real issue the real big difference when it all comes down to it over Reformed theology or Calvinism versus, say, Arminianism or other views, the real crux of the matter really boils down to do you believe in unconditional election or conditional election? Do you believe that the some that are saved were determined by God or was it determined by man? Was it something where God determined who his people would be and chose to raise them to life and save them for his own purposes and for his decree and for his glory? Or are you to believe that God was beholden to the choice of man in the sense that he can only save those that choose him? In one case, you have a powerful, perfect Savior. In the other case, you have someone that would really want to save someone, but they, he can't because they didn't choose him. And so I believe as your superhero, Calvinist man, that in unconditional election, that God has an elect people, he will raise them to life, and he has others that he simply passes over. And we'll get into a much deeper discussion of unconditional election at a later date, but there is the error of equal ultimacy that I first learned from Dr. James White that you have to deal with. Many of their misrepresentations of unconditional election, they will engage in the error of equal ultimacy, saying that the same effort and ability and power that was put in by God to save his elect is the same ability and power that's put into passing, passing over the unelect. That's not true. To save his people, God had to sacrifice everything. He had to come to earth in the incarnation and be brutally murdered in order to make atonement to save his people. In passing over the unelect to ensure in one case, to ensure the salvation of his people, God had to make the right sacrifice that would be make the peace offering so that a man could stand justified before God. In the case of the unelect, God has to do nothing. 
In fact, if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God, all flesh would be would would be in the pit of hell paying for their sins. God has to do nothing. He just simply has to pass over the unelect, choose not to raise them to spiritual life. And you say, this is always the point which many will shake their hands and the fist in the air and say, well, that's unfair. That's not fair. You know, why would he choose some and not others? Well, Deuteronomy speaks about the secret things of God. God has his decree. He has his purposes and has his reasons for why he does what he does and the means by which he accomplishes it. And we are not told all those things in this life. I believe that one day a lot of these things will become clear to us, but we're not told why he chooses some and chooses and doesn't choose others. But the fact of the matter is, the Armenian has the same question they have to answer. See, they like to act like, you know, they don't have to answer that question because we believe it's just open to all and anybody could. And ultimately, if they don't, it's only on them. Well, category error, because we would say the same thing. If someone is unsaved and someone doesn't, choose to repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ, it's because they didn't want to. You see, the total, totally depraved individual, the one that their spirit is dead in Christ, is not a neutral being, someone that's just going along, living their life, that mean old God didn't choose them. And that's, see, there's a whole lot of misrepresentations that we're going to deal with on this program. But that's one of the ones you see, well, that's not fair. And, you know, here's going along and it's all God's fault. No. No, we believe that the one that is spiritual that has a spirit that is dead in sin is not in neutrality. They are, as Colossians describes, they're in active rebellion. Anyone left to themselves would love their sin, choose their sin, and die in their sin. They do not want Christ. They do not want to be saved. They do not want to repent. That's why it's such a great miracle, an act of mercy, that God would extend salvation to anyone. It's a great wonder, miracle-working power and a wonder of His grace and mercy that He would raise anybody to spiritual life. God does not have to raise anybody to spiritual life. God does not have to save anybody. He's not beholden to any of His creatures. The fact that He raises just one person to life and grants them salvation in His Son is a miracle upon miracles and would be enough to give him glory. But think about how much more glory God gets in raising an elect people to life, to spiritual life, that as he told Abraham would be as the sands of the sea. See, the ultimate goal in this discussion should be the glory of God the Father, not the glory of our system or our tradition or proving a point right. And so unconditional election is one of those that we will dive into quite deeply because there's a lot to be said there. So Moving on so we can uh, complete this first episode here. Uh, the next one is commonly called limited atonement. It's another one where I don't particularly like the way the quote unquote tulip puts it. I prefer the term particular atonement, meaning, well, what's commonly described in, with limited atonement is that, you know, uh, you know, God died for his elect and, you know, they want to say, well, you know, it's and then the phrase I used to hear a lot is, you know, well, well, Christ's death was sufficient for all, but only efficient for some. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of cliches to begin with. So that cliche rears its ugly head quite often. Um, and they'll say, well, you know, 
we yes, we believe in an elect and only some will be saved, but we 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 believe the atonement was for all, and it's sort of in their minds that sort of gets God off the hook because it seems just so foreign to them and so wrong to them that God could have only died just for his people. Well, well that's what Christ came to do. In his atonement, when Christ came to earth, when Christ died on the cross, he came to make the sacrifice and the payment specifically for his people. Christ's atonement either actually accomplishes something or it doesn't. Calvinist man and the Reformed soteriology believes that when he died on that cross, it actually paid for the sins of his people, that it actually accomplished eternal redemption for the sins of his people. Now, in time, meaning in time, in the moment in time, as each person is raised to life and repents and has faith in Christ, that redemption is applied and they're sealed by the Spirit in that in time when that occurs. But it says in Hebrews that when he died on the cross, it secured eternal redemption for all his people. And so that's what we believe, that his atonement actually accomplishes that end. Irresistible grace, I also have an issue with because, and like I said, that's why, you know, I'll talk about Tulip, but I don't necessarily am a Tulip man. I would prefer to say I'm reformed in my soteriology that I'm about the doctrines of grace, so on and so forth. Irresistible grace sort of plays into the teaching and the understanding that would be very reformed in flavor, that would probably believe in unconditional election. They may even believe in a particular atonement, but they would still put regeneration after repentance and faith. And so they would describe it as it's a grace that's so irresistible that when God calls you, nobody in their right mind could ever resist it. And so that's why ultimately you'll see the need for repentance. You'll see the need for faith and then you exercise it and you're regenerated. And this was what I was for a long time because it, it, it was very hard to wrap my head around the fact that someone would be regenerated before because you always have been taught by default, and, and don't even get me started on the, the easy believism of the fundamentalism, or the fundies, if you will. But you always taught, you know, you got to get somebody saved, got to get them saved, get them saved so they can be raised to life, raised to life. Well, the format and the sequence of events that you see, not just in life, um, but in the scriptures, is that dead men don't raise themselves. Dead men have to be resurrected. That follows suit with our resurrection. When we die one day, we will be raised back to physical life by Christ. And the same thing is true for our spiritual life. We cannot raise ourselves to life. And so irresistible grace is what usually is referring to the fact of regeneration and how it happens and when it happens. And so I don't like the terminology irresistible grace because it makes it sound like God is doing something that requires or would need to happen in man before he could be raised to life. Whereas scripture, I believe, teaches that God raises a person's spirit to life to where now in the trichotomy of man, his body is alive, his soul is alive in that he exists and has being, but now his spirit has been raised to life. And we see in scripture, the results of a person that is alive in Christ, 
will have faith, they'll repent of their sin, they'll have the fruits of righteousness, as Philippians talks about. And so I believe that we should focus on explaining the fact that regeneration would precede faith as opposed to referring to the irresistible grace. So, And then lastly, perseverance of the saints. This is the one that usually even most of your Arminians won't disagree or have too much issue with. Perseverance of the saints is usually not a big controversial thing. It's usually the one that pretty much everybody, I think, for the most part would agree on. It just simply means we would, we, or I, Calvinist man would explain it. The same God who saves you, when he saves you, he saves you perfectly. He doesn't save you by works. He doesn't save you by any foreseen merit or uh, good thing you've done. He saves you because he saves perfectly. And he raises you to life not to be destroyed. When he raises you to life, once your spirit has been raised to life, it can't die or go back to its original state of being dead in sin. That's the biggest understanding here is the perseverance of the saints. Those that are raised to life will persevere. And I don't mind the term perseverance because I do believe, just like we said, God works your Christian life or works in you, but you also have to put forth effort in your life. I do believe Christians have an active perseverance in their salvation in the sense that they love Christ and grow in him and all these things. But ultimately what it's about is you are raised to life by Christ and that condition remains. So you're persevering or the, the condition of being alive in Christ remains steadfast. It perseveres, it endures, it doesn't change. And so that that's really what it really what we're looking at here is those that would say, well, you could lose your salvation or you could fall away and all these things. And it's just simply not what scripture teaches. Those that have been raised to life, those that have been saved, persevere or remain in that state because God saves perfectly. And so ultimately what we have in the Reformed soteriology, in Calvinism, is the understanding not about what man does or what man doesn't do, what man chooses or what man doesn't choose. It's about what God does. It is a God-centered understanding of salvation that understands that God is a God that saves perfectly. He redeems perfectly. He atones for sin perfectly. He elects perfectly. And as John 6 says, all that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. And so even if you don't agree with Calvinist man's take on a certain text or my explanation of a particular point of the tulip or anything like that, those are all discussions that can be had. Okay? That's fine. What I want you to understand is even if you don't agree, it doesn't therefore equate to, well, Calvinism, Calvinism is a boogeyman. Calvinism is something to be feared. You say, well, that doesn't happen. Trust me, it does. Now, primarily it happens in its most egregious form in independent fundamentalism, where you've heard whole sermons preach. Bless God, he's being wrong that Calvinism. He ain't glad to stand in my pulpit teaching that Calvinism, and especially with King James-onlyism, too. And he ain't going to teach my 
pulpit from the NIV and all this crazy nonsense of, you know, they they will tell you Calvinists are just evil and they need to be feared. You need to run from them. And they wouldn't dare let somebody step in their pulpit talking about that. I've heard whole sermons talk about the evils of Calvinism and all this just absurd nonsense. That's the extreme. So we should recognize that and be like, y'all need to go have a donut and calm down, okay? But the the main thing you're going to encounter is usually well-intentioned people, well-intentioned Christians that don't hate Calvinist people. They don't hate us. They they are generally, it's from a place of ignorance. They have either not been taught correctly or what they have been taught about Reformed theology is that it's all Calvinism is hyper-Calvinism, that Cal, or they've been taught something so erroneous about Calvinism that in their minds that what that's what Calvinism is. So when you encounter like for and I'll end with this example. I've actually done this. I was in an interview where, you know, they said, you know, we're worried about Calvinism. We were told to watch out for it. It's this and that. We want to make sure you're not this. And so what I do is I, you know, when they set that up and say, well, you know, you're not one of them Calvinists, are you? I don't go in and start explaining it and say, well, this is what I is. No, the best way to get people to learn, but also the way to debate is to ask questions and let people explain to you what they mean by something. So in this interview, I just said, well, let me ask you something. What do you mean by Calvinism? And they said, well, that just means that, you know, God just determined everything and who's going to be saved and we ain't got nothing to do with it. And even those that are being, they even go so far as to say that they've been taught that Calvinism means that even some of those that are being saved didn't want to be saved and God just forced them to be saved. And, you know, <laughs> crazy stuff. And so in this situation, when I was told this, it was obvious a misrepresentation, not intentional, mind you, an ignorant one, but a misrepresentation nonetheless. And obviously this person had been taught that hyper-Calvinism is all that Calvinism is. So I said, look, sir, I have great news for you. Everything you just said is not what Reformed theology teaches. Everything you just said is not what any honest, God-centered, biblically astute Calvinist would say. What you just described is a hyper form of Calvinism that is not biblical. And they say, oh, well, uh, what is it then? And then I was able to describe in short fashion, in short order, you know, that if we believe that God in, in Trinitarian fashion and three persons of Trinity decided before they ever created the world that they would create a world and populate it with people and choose to redeem a certain people for their name. And, and you know, I try to stick to saying things at the way Scripture says it. So if they say, well, that's just your opinion, I'm like, well, what's my opinion? I'm just telling you what Scripture says. And that's the goal. That is the goal that your humble resident superhero Calvinist man has for this program. I want to stick to the text. I want to be consistent with the text. I want the text to have its say. And we need to draw our conclusions, whether it's Calvinistic, Armenian, or whatever, draw your conclusions based on not what some systemized tradition says or what some predetermined theological system says, but let's draw and systemize our beliefs based off the text. Now, I know everybody out there, including your provisionist, Armenians, all say that. 
We all say that. We all agree that that should be the goal. And I commend our Armenian brothers and sisters. I commend our synergistic brothers and sisters. I even commend, God bless them, Leighton Flowers and our provisionist brothers and sisters that would say that. Now, I do believe that they mean that. I do believe that is their goal. They can get a little snarky on Twitter, but then again, there's some reform people that need to take a couple chill pills as well. We all do, okay? I do believe that's what they want to do. So what we need to do is judge what they're saying, what I, Calvinist man, am saying, and say, is what is being presented the most consistent argumentation based on what the text's saying? And that's what I really want to try to make this about. And look, if we're going to solve all problems related to this subject, no. Am I going to convince a couple of people that Calvinist man knows what he's talking about? Maybe. Am I going to cause a couple people probably go, man, that guy has lost his daggone mind. Yeah, probably happened too. But you know what? It'll be fun. We'll have a good time, have a few laughs, maybe even cry a little bit. Maybe some of you will get angry. But at the end of the day, let's all love the word of God. Let's love it together and trust that your superhero, Calvinist man, is here to help you. So thank you for joining me on this first ever episode of the Adventures with Calvinist Man. Good day and good night.